Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. Brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review. Before we launch into today's show, I'd like to welcome Mark to the IPA. Mark was listening last week, heard about our great promotion for five favourite books with Bella de Brera kicking off with Greg Sheridan and took advantage of the special offer to become a member and to get exclusive access to that wonderful series of podcasts uh, hosted by Bella de Brera. So that's the happy news for the day. We are coming to you live from the Bailey Meyer studio in Melbourne and Melbourne this week, it is the national story. For once, we make no apologies for being Melbourne-centric because what happens in Melbourne is affecting the rest of Australia. So we'll be talking about COVID, the Dan Andrews government. Uh, We'll be breaking it up a little bit of Donald Trump's fight back in the culture wars and the battle for Western civilization. But then we'll also be lifting the lid on Victoria because if you think COVID's the worst thing happening in Victoria, wait till you hear about what's been going on with the economy, our infrastructure binge and the most expensive rail tunnels in the world, the most expensive construction projects in the world, it seems. Um, So a very happy show for you today. Um, To walk us through this, I'd like to welcome, first of all, uh, our co-host, Dr. Chris Berg from RMIT University, coming to us live from his bunker. (laughs) Thank you, Scott. (laughs) Great to have you. Safe safe from the bombs. That's that's what. Excellent. And uh, later on in our Books and Culture segment, uh, uh, Chris will be talking about the Friedman Conference hosted by the Australian Taxpayers Alliance and the uh, Libertarian Society, which is happening this weekend, and uh, Chris is playing a big role in that, as are many of our great IPA personnel who will be appearing in various sessions. So he's going to walk us through that. Um, I'll be talking about Hamilton the Musical, and uh, my colleague whom I'm about to introduce, Dan Wilde, will be talking about Joel Kotkin's latest book. As I mentioned, Daniel Wilde. G'day. Great to have you on the show, Good Dan. Good to be back on, Scott. Oh, brilliant. Um, here in the studio while we can. Uh, Dan, of course, is Director of Research at the IPA. Um, so, Chris, Victoria, the national story. Lockdown again. Stage three, it, deja vu. Tell us about it is that. Deja vu again, as we did in March, as we did in April. We all tuned into Daniel Andrews' press conference um, uh, where he announced that Victoria had 191 cases and that we were going to, as a consequence, in one day, I should say, and we were going to, as a consequence, return to stage three restrictions. All the restaurants and bars that have only just opened have now are now being closed. We're recording this on Wednesday, so they're being closed tonight. Once again, we're back to the limit of only four lawful reasons to leave your home. Um, the school term, which is close to my heart, school term has been delayed one week. It looks very likely we're, like we're going back to um, distance education. Um, this is uh, not just demoralizing, but potentially catastrophic, both for the national economy and for um, really Australia's global position. Dan, this looks a lot like a crisis. Yeah, that's right, Chris. And in addition to all of the you know economic issues you outlined, um, really, I think the main issue for a lot of people in this state um, is the psychological impact uh, and the mental impact of this. Uh, a lot of people gearing up to return to some element of normalcy, as you mentioned, cafes opening up, uh, being able to you know serve customers in a more normal way. Now it's really back to square one. That's we're back where we were three months ago. Um, so a lot of people have lost 
a lot of hope and a lot of optimism about the near future. Six weeks, on the one hand, you might say not a long time, but six weeks on top of three or four months is a very long time. Um, and who knows? I mean, who knows? It might be more than six weeks. And then we're starting to get into September uh, and then people start thinking of Christmas. Right? So that's that's sort of 2020 uh, for a lot of people that is, has really gone. Um, and I think it does get to a couple of very big issues, which is the the main reporting of the coronavirus, not just in Victoria, but around the country, is really focused on the number of cases, um, which, whilst not irrelevant, is not the only relevant piece of information. There's also, of course, the recovery rate, which is 98, 99%. And there is the hospitalization rate, which is vanishingly low. Based on my most, reading, most recent reading, I think there's four or five people in Victoria that are in intensive care units. It's single uh, digits. Yeah. Single is certainly not 10. Um, now, that's delightful on, on one hand to say this is nowhere near as virulent and deadly as we first thought, but um, we had predictions from the Department of Health that this would be 5,000 nationally as a, as a daily peak in terms of the number of people in ICUs from the coronavirus. Now, the actual national peak was 98, so they're out by a factor of 50. So, again, that's wonderful news, but it does sort of raise the question of the efficacy of government intervention. If it was going to be China or Italy, sure, I think this would be justified, but... Australia, probably because we're an island, uh, because we had very quick international border lockdowns, um, the disease has been nowhere near as deadly here. So um, I see this as, again, a very disproportionate approach to the underlying health consequences of the virus. It's an interesting question, isn't it? Because you can have some sympathy in March or even February for governments that had no idea how fatal this virus was how um, damaging it would be to a healthcare system, how damaging it would be to an economy if they just let it go. But we've not only have we started to answer a lot of those questions, and yeah, we're going to be debating this for years, so there's, there's no final answers, but we know a lot more about the effect of the virus on an economy, and we know a lot more about how to treat the virus once you've gotten the disease. And I think often we think about this as well, you know, there's either it's free reign for the virus or there's a vaccine for the virus. But that's obviously not the case because treatment makes it less fatal. Treatment gets better over time. And if that's true, then our policy choices in July are quite different to they were to what they were in March. Well, they should be, Chris. I think you make a very good point there. And, you know, when I think of everything we've been saying on on looking forward, uh, over over a period of months, um, th this is exactly the point. This obsession with with modelling and pandemic wide measures, and the two things come together here because we have reached this pass because the Victorian government, um, to some extent the in, the entire country, but certainly the Victorian government most of all has been obsessed with that kind of modelling, with that kind of public health management approach. The daily press conferences to announce new restrictions on uh, the movement of Victorians, uh, the punitive measures. Um, which they won't admit half of them were rubbish. So, so in this round, stage three, deja vu, uh, golf's okay. It wasn't last time around. Fishing's okay. It wasn't last time around. Is there any word of apology for the fact that these were rubbish restrictions in the first place? No. We're a long time waiting for that. But they were obsessed with these measures. Meanwhile, what you have is the things that they could actually control through the health apparatus, through the departments of government, this is what they've comprehensively stuffed up. So you have, for instance, the Chief Medical Officer of the State, Brett Sutton, he's out in, in the Medical Journal of Australia in May. Is he writing about the coronavirus? No, he's concerned about greenhouse gases coming from Victorian hospitals. We've had the Deputy Chief 
medical officer in Victoria who thought the biggest issue uh, back in April or May was uh, Black Lives Matter and uh, statues of Captain Cook and whether or not we should honour his anniversary. So, asleep at the wheel. Victorian government departments had the opportunity of running these hotels in quarantine. Uh, we now know that that was a complete and colossal disaster. They're all running for cover now. They had private security contractors coming in with no training uh, and seemingly no interest in maintaining disease control. They've actually become disease vectors. Uh, they've taken it back into communities. Uh, we've discovered that uh, people who were supposedly in isolation because of concerns that they might have COVID-19 were not required to be tested. So the things that the Victorian government could have actually controlled uh, is what they've comprehensively stuffed up. But the answer, once again, is more lockdown, more restrictions on everyone in Victoria. That's the thing. So we, I think, have always had this uh, a better view of what's actually operating here, but they're still stuck in this rut. And we're now, it's almost like path dependency. We've come to this point. Um, it's almost like by the time you, you arrive at where we arrived at yesterday, um, I know some people, uh, even some of our friends are saying, well, what else could have Dan, Dan Andrews have done? Well, I don't agree with that, but I, I see their point. It's like it's, it's the internal logic of everything we've done to this point leads to this lockdown. But they, we're only here because they buggered up the things that they actually could control. They, they, they refused to take C2Meet seriously. They never wanted to actually intervene um, in those cases of community transmission. They were too busy fining people for playing golf. Um, uh, the five boys who got uh, fined 1600 bucks each for playing backyard cricket. I mean, this is where we are in Victoria. So it is a national story and everyone around Australia needs to understand that this is a disgrace because so much of it was avoidable. Uh, but I also take Dan's point that uh, on the other hand, let's not freak out about the actual pandemic itself because these, these are still um, numbers that in the global scheme of things are, are not, are not uh, that great. Yes, and just I think just to build on both what Chris was discussing and what you've just brought up in terms of path dependency, which I think is a good point and having you know, internal logic that we seem to be tethered to, which is in March, April, the discussion was around, as you remember, flattening the curve. Hmm. When was the last time anybody heard that expression used by a politician <laughs> or a health bureaucrat? It's moved to suppression or elimination. Now, if that's the goal, then fine. That's the goal. But they should be honest that we've changed yeah. strategy. Hmm. Um, shifting the curve was probably the right strategy. Um, I think it was really that or herd immunity, as I see as the two main paths you could have gone down in March. Um, so understandable health system as chris said could be overwhelmed we need to manage it sure 5000 peak caseload that's very scary understandable but by the time we got into at least certainly june but i would argue even a bit earlier than that um the curve was was not only flattened it was gone <laughs> like there was we were in single digits in places like south australia and wa um so originally the whole edifice and the reason i'm bringing this up is the whole edifice of the lockdown was to to spread the curve, to shift the curve. Um, now it's apparently we can't live with the virus at all, which is a completely yeah. different um, ball game. But but that might so the, so the challenge, as I see it, in a country like Australia, where we have actually been on top of the virus, unlike you know some other countries where there's just no way that you would be able to do the contact tracing in part because they didn't start it early enough. But the challenge we might be is that it might be elimination or nothing, or it might be elimination or herd immunity and i think the shock to the public health system in victoria and i don't want to be seen defend, overly defending it but i think the shock to the public health system is that it takes almost nothing for it to spiral out of control 
you know, a one case out of quarantine becomes 200 cases two weeks later. Um, and in that sense, if they don't eliminate, there's no such thing as suppression. There's no such thing as flattening the curve. You either eliminate or you let it go. Now, I think I'm, I think they've chosen the elimination strategy. I'm I'm angry that they are unwilling to share that piece of that strategic decision with us, but it is clearly motivating all of the policy choices that they're making. They may have been forced into it, but that's what they're doing now. They yeah, need to admit I think that. that I think that's right, Chris. And um and there's a price to be paid for not for not being honest about that, because at some point, and this is really now the problem for, for Scott Morrison. Uh, at some point, the, all these wonderful experts on you know public health communication, because it seems that all public health experts actually do is obsess about communicating with the public. They don't actually run health systems or do anything uh, useful, I'm starting to think. Um, they are going to have to develop a strategy to say to the Australian public, you cannot panic every time there is an outbreak in a cluster um, or, or you know, contract tree, which might might involve uh, dozens or hundreds of people. We can't shut states down. We sh- can't shut a country down. And I and I think, looking ahead, uh, as you know, I'm a, I'm a great skeptic about uh, the likelihood of any uh, uh, virus, any any vaccine actually coming along anytime soon, which is going to be a hundred percent efficacious. I think it is time to start thinking about a world of how is Australia going to live in a COVID-19 world for at least two years. Mm. We're going to have to reposition people so that we can't shut economies down every time there's a little bit of an outbreak in a cluster. And I think what will happen, instead of a vaccine, we will have a variety of treatments. As Dan said, the the actual recovery rates are are terrific, uh, thank goodness. Um, Every death is a tragedy, but um, uh, the, the percentages are low. And uh, some of the treatments will reduce the probabilities of illness, reduce the probability of fatality even lower. And at some point, I think Scott Morrison is just going to have to declare victory, whether it's hydrochloroquine or whatever it's called, you know, some other treatment, uh, some some kind of vaccine mm. which works for most people, yeah. blood serum transfusions for hospital workers, um, you know, more serum tests, whatever. It's going to, it's, it'll probably be a bundle of things. And at some point, you're just going to say, that's good enough. That's just good enough. Uh, let's now focus on getting people back to work. Uh, let's halt the, um, the the stampede of bankruptcies that we're seeing in the tourism and hospitality sectors, and get Australia moving again. That's the challenge, as I see it. Yeah, I think one. I think that's right. And they will. You're quite right to point out they're going to need something to leverage to say, "Don't freak out. We've got X, whatever X mm. is." The problem is that we've got the we, COVID safe app. We've got yeah. the COVID <laughs> safe app. That's, that's, that's right. That's exactly right. And but the problem is that they've spent all this time having the exact opposite message. You know, there's been no opposition, there's been no political opposition yep. at the state or federal level. I mean, the only intervention Albanese had a couple of months ago, probably three months ago now, was they need to go harder. So there's been no it's just been a cacophony of one direction. You've got to freak out, you've got to panic, this is a big deal, we're shutting everything down. Um I, I just wonder whether how you come back from that after you know, can you do it in any credible way? It, what would really need is an opposition, and I think in Victoria certainly you need to have an opposition to say this is the vote for us. We're giving you a different way, hmm. just because it's been and it, it raises the issue of trust and credibility. I mean, if we've been told one thing, and like maybe for very good reason, but the reality is we've been told one thing for three or four months. How do you pivot to the complete opposite message? Exactly. I mean, we've been saying it for months that we're, there's no end game. 
There is no that's end the game. That's the problem, yeah. Uh, uh, no end game short of a vaccine, and that's just not a credible end game. Correct, correct. Well, I mean, there there is an end game in so far as the federal government has um, uh, scheduled a lot of the policy interventions that it has introduced to run out in September. So, for instance, the JobKeeper um, supplement will disappear in September. We're talking about a schedule to remove the job seeker um, to, to roll that back at least um, somewhat, the job seeker um, uh, payments. So, so th there's clearly a policy end game, but I think what the shock about this week in Victoria is is that we're not we, we we were all really excited and it seemed like Australia had pulled off the miracle success that we had zero cases I remember Scott we were celebrating on this podcast there was there was basically zero cases zero community transmission um, and now we're back looking forward six to twelve months eighteen months it's very hard to see how the economy is going to recover. Dan, are you more pessimistic, less pessimistic than that? I'm, I, I'm, I, I'm feeling dark today. You're feeling dark. Well, I'll, I'll start off with my assessment. Then I've just got a question to you about whether you, you know, whether JobKeeper will end in September. I think that's mm -hmm. actually yeah. an open question. Um, yeah. No, look, I, I'm, you know, on the one hand, I, I'm pessimistic because I'm a, admittedly, amateur reader of history. But you do pick up in history that these kind of events, whether it's plagues, whether it's these unforeseen ex external shocks, have a way of really um, potentially never being resolved in a fundamental way, if, even if you just look at the cumulative debt burden that we have as a result of this. So um, there's a lot of historical precedent for how this can go very wrong. Um, so that that does make me worried. Um, on the positive side, I think that this lockdown has revealed a number of things to people, um, which I think is a positive, the importance of work, um, the importance of being able to run your business, um, the significant negative impacts that government can have on your life and on your business in an incredibly short amount of time. People are more aware now than they've ever been um, just how wide-reaching government power can be. Now, p some people might like it, some people might not like it, but it's clearly a fact that cannot be denied. Um, and I think also the importance of community. I think as, as people have become more isolated and detached, uh, people have understood the importance of whatever it is they do in their lives, whether it's sport, whether it's their religion, whether it's at the RSL, um, the importance of those ties that we have to one another. So I'm positive that in the sense that a lot of those things that we talk about at the IPA um, about the important, it's really about having a stake, the importance of having a stake in your own life and your community and how you have a better future. Um, a lot of those things have become more immediately apparent to the average person in a way that they weren't. Before. So I'm very hopeful that that will be something that will be front of mind for a very long time to come. Certainly, it was the case in the Great Depression. If you talk to grandparents that were um, involved at that time, they never forgot the Great Depression their whole life. They were very frugal with their money as a result. So that lesson stayed with them. Um, I'm hopeful some of the lessons will stay with us, and I think they will. Um, so I'm probably overall optimistic and hopeful, um, but I'm aware of the very serious challenges we face. Um, and I just wanted to turn to a question, Chris, just in terms of the policy end game. Um, my personal view is I don't see these policies, JobKeeper, ending in September. I, I think that it's almost inevitable that there will be an extension of that program in one form or another, even if it's just in Victoria. <laughs> so what, I mean, what, what do you, do you think it will end in September or you yeah, think it'll crack on? No, on, on the basic question, I think that's that's absolutely right. I don't think job people will end in September. I've been thinking through what is the, um, how does the policy reform play out from here? And, and we've talked about this a bit on the podcast. So I think JobKeeper will eventually end. There's, there's just, without going to a full UBI system, which I don't really see is on the cards, 
um, I think that we will end the job keeper system. Job seeker will always stay high. I've I've made the argument a number of times now that um, things like free childcare are, are likely to be very sticky. Um, I was hoping that we would get to a stage where we could, you know, steadily start rolling those back, rolling those policies back, or make the choices to keep in some cases, um, which would be a, a problem, and then we can focus on the economic growth that would pay for them. I, I think the stickiness, however, of these policies is going to be a lot more, given that we're going to keep having these upright, uh, upsurges of um, uh, of the disease if we're going to keep going back into lockdown. Because you think about you you think about running a business now. Yeah. Think about running a restaurant. It's not enough now for you just to be allowed to run the restaurant again. The uncertainty that you might be told to shut down again in in a month or two weeks will be overwhelming and that's going to be a huge drain on the economy. I was really comforted a couple of months ago when Josh Frydenberg said, look, once we've done the lockdown, we're not going back. Now, whether that's believable or not at the time, at least it was a fairly clear assertion that we weren't going to just go up and down and up and down and up and down. What's happened in Victoria now Everybody around the country, every business in the country is thinking, well, what happens if this happens in Queensland? Am I going to be shut down in two weeks? Should I make any investments? Should I be loading up my stock levels? Should I be, in the case of pubs, should I be buying more kegs or not? They had to sell all their kegs in lockdown. Now they've all bought some. Will they have to sell them again? I, I, I think this is the regime uncertainty that this brings is potentially more catastrophic than the initial first lockdown. It's a cheery thought. Uh, one of the other Thanks. things. No, my pleasure. One of the other things that was responsible for the spike in Victoria, which um, only Dan Andrews doesn't want to admit, uh, is the Black Lives Matter march yes. in Melbourne, uh, which was waved through by the very same public health authorities that didn't want you to play golf, um, and uh, the police turned a blind eye, and Dan Andrews washed his hands of it. Um, this was almost a, a high point of this uh, wave that's uh, been sweeping the Western world of, of cancel culture, um, of nihilism, uh, in amongst, of course, some, some genuine uh, concerns about um, uh, police brutality in America or, or racism as an issue. Uh, but, of course, it all got swept away with uh, something much, much broader, a much, much broader cultural moment um, which led then to almost an orgy of destruction of, of statues uh, and um, cesspits like we've seen in Seattle and Portland. Um, so it seemed like that was a wave, a cultural moment. Um, but Chris, uh, July 4th has brought forth um, uh, perhaps uh, the, the, the first shot in uh, what might be the, um, the fight back against that, depending on how you look at it. You know I, I like... what I refer to? <laughs> I do. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. That was an excellent segue. Um, uh, so, yes, um, Donald Trump uh, gave a speech, his July 4th speech uh, for this year in front of Mount Rushmore in South Dakota. Um, he actually gave it on July 3rd, where he gave a, um, a, a, a strong speech um, where he proclaimed. Um, I'll give you some quotes, actually. I'm here as your president to proclaim before the country and before the world this monument, referring, of course, to Mount Rushmore, will never be de desecrated. These heroes will never be defaced. Their legacy will never be destroyed. Their achievements will never be forgotten. Um, uh, he also argued that angry mobs are trying to tear down statues of our founders, deface our most sacred memorials, 
and unleash a wave of violent crime in our cities. He even did things like calling out cancel culture specifically as well, um, uh, making many of the points that we've made on this podcast. And of course, um, many of our friends around the world have made about the wave of uh, the woke apocalypse or um, Unfortunately, he didn't use the word woke apocalypse. That would have been awesome. Um, but nonetheless, so uh, this is, it, it's probably worth talking about this in the context of um, the current election campaign. But Dan, just on the speech itself, I don't know whether you saw it or not, but what was your, what, what, what's your first take on, on the speech itself? Uh, I did see it. Um, I think it's his probably second or third most significant speech. I'm not going to say best because the actual delivery of it was actually a bit flatter than usual, it wasn't as ruckus as his famous 30,000 people stadium um, events were. Um, but significant, I think the Poland speech he delivered in defense of Western civilization, probably his inaugural address, I thought was fairly significant for the content, uh, American carnage speech. Um, this one is up there with significance because of the, the points that you outlined, um, Chris, that those were the, the main, I think, headline quotes um, that basically captured, it was a culture war speech. It was a 2020 culture war speech, basically. And the reason it's significant is basically, and you mentioned the 2020 campaign, which is he hasn't, If I don't know if anyone listened to the, the, his previous rally in Tulsa, uh, which was famous for its low crowd numbers, but the content of the speech was a bit 2016 all over again. It was a bit, he was searching for something. They hadn't found what 2020 it, it was, was a bit. It was a bit ramp focused, I thought. It was, uh, it was a bit strange. It was a bit strange. It was a bit all over the place. And I think a lot of Trump supporters were a bit worried, like, well, what's going on? Is he completely missing this? Like, we can't do 2016 again. We've had the coronavirus. You can't run on the strong economy because even though it was strong, it's not strong now. And so he was searching. And this gets to a point that we talk a lot about on well, – you guys talk a lot about on this podcast and we talk a lot about it at the IRPA and RMIT, which is how do you achieve policy change? What is your actual motive of trying to achieve change? And this is significant because the content of Trump's speech is remarkably close to – what an institute in America, Claremont Institute, a Claremont Review of Books, um, has been discussing. And in particular, there was an essay written by um, somebody at the American Mind, which is a subsidiary of the Claremont Review of Books, where it basically said, look, Trump needs a 2020 message, a 2020 strategy. What is it? And basically said it needs to be about the American way of life versus the radical left. It's 1776 versus the 1619 Project, the 1619 Project being the New York Times, project to say basically America, the true founding was 1619 when slaves first came to America, not 1776, the point that America is a land of slaves, not freedom. And that's this is what that's the essence of the outline of the essay, and we can put up a link to, to the whole essay for people to read. Basically, what then happened is somebody wrote an op-ed for the New York Post, which is one of the, it's the most widely read paper in the United States, and then Rush Limbaugh wrote uh, Rush Limbaugh read the New York Post column. So that then projected it out to 40 or 50 million people. And then Trump's speech bears remarkable similarity mm -hmm. to the content of some of this. So it's it's very interesting to see that play out uh, as somebody who watches and reads these things very closely to actually read the essay when it first came out. And then only a couple of months later to see Trump's speech, it's clear that they have influenced the content um, of his speech and therefore the direction of of Trump's campaign. And the important thing is he's really setting up the battle lines, which is we do have a, a counter-revolution. This is actually what he said. We have a counter-revolutionary force which is trying to upset the American Revolution. Now, we can agree or disagree with that, but that's how he's framing 2020, which I think is, in my view, that's 100% correct. Um, there are two different regimes. There's identity politics and there's the basic um, in integrity of the individual, which is the basis of Western civilization. I think they're different concepts of justice. 
and competing concepts of what a regime should look like. Um, and I think it's very significant that Trump, as the most substantial figure in the Western world, has taken up this battle. Um, and I think that's a very positive thing. Um, that's a terrific analysis, Dan. I didn't know uh, how, how that propagated out. Uh, and took us that moment. I think it's a very viable hypothesis that there's a direct link there. I mean, I don't think Trump himself would sit around and talk to the Claremont Review of Books. No, but, but he, he listens to Rush or it, someone listens to Rush. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Um, absolutely. So that's, that's, that's how it gets there. Um, I liked it for a, a slightly different reason, actually, Dan, because um, uh, we've talked about this on the show. I was talking about Steve Bannon last week, as you know. Now, one of the things that Steve Bannon hated was the phrase... The idea of America. Yes. Um, Steve Bannon is, uh, uh, Chris, you recall we were discussing, he, he very much likes the idea it's about the American people, the, the, the soul of the earth, the, 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 um, the working class, for want of a better word, you know, the, the, the steel worker in Iowa or Oklahoma, uh, the heartland. Uh, he, has a, he actually has an almost mystical sense of how they represent America. And, you know, it's like... The, you know, the neocons always bang on about the idea of America. That's how we finished up in the quagmire of Iraq. That's sort of the, the Bannon view. And I think that was, that was the 2016 flavour. Um, I read Trump's speech and this, is, and this is right back to the idea of America. This is about the founding. I mean, the Claremont Review of Books is about nothing if not the founding. Yeah. We're back to the, the Claremont Review of Books, the Federalist Society that promotes the Supreme Court appointments. You've got to believe in the founding. And, and I actually I think that's the only viable path, not just um, politically, but I think for that country it, 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 because it does not emerge from um, uh, time immemorial. It was a created country. It is a republic. Correct. You know, I've, I find the echoes of, of, of Livy in this. You know, and I've talked before about countries need their foundation myths. It's why, um, as uh, Dr. Zach Gorman has pointed out, uh, uh, there was – it's no accident that Captain Cook – was created as as part of the foundation myth of Australia, this this enlightenment person, mm. because we wanted to appropriate that to ourselves. Countries have to have these foundational myths, and there's no doubt that the oppositional forces know exactly what they're doing when they're trying to tear it down, literally tear down the statues. They aim to tear down the foundation myths. And um, so when I see Trump um, pivoting, he's it's no surprise that he's fighting a culture war, I think, um, he's always hated the left, um, but the grounds on which he's fighting, I think it's a bit more subtle. It's, it, it's, it is different mm. to 2016. It's different to the sort of thing he might have said in 2016. And who knows, maybe all the neocons will come flocking back well, <laughs> under, yeah. under think, the banner. <laughs> I, I think one of the challenges is that um, until this speech, and I'll, I'll take up the speech in a moment, until this speech, Trump was fighting a 2016 campaign, but my view is that it wasn't. he wasn't fighting a Trump 26 campaign, he was fighting a Clinton 2016 campaign, where his story was that you support me because I am me. And um, uh, just as Hillary Clinton was uh, put out all this stuff, you know, there was the I'm with her t-shirts, there was the happy, uh, you know, happy birthday to the next president stuff. <laughs> um, Hillary Clinton was representative, of, trying to be a representative of, you know, the world will be Hillary Clinton. And until until this speech, arguably, um, I think Trump had been leaning down that way. There'd been some pretty embarrassing attempts at trying to determine what a second term 
policy agenda would be. Now, now you're absolutely right, Dan. So this is this is clearly a pivot, and they've decided that they've, they've picked a strategy. Now, uh, whether he's able to keep that strategy up is an interesting question. But what I want to know, and what I think is worth discussing, is in the middle of an economic crisis and a pandemic. Um, yes, this is a um, this is a alternative model in order to that you might be able to get a constituency for. But do we think that's what the American people are looking for in a very highly stressed environment? Do that many people care about or, or are even paying attention to Confederate statues being pulled down? Do people really believe that Mount Rushmore is A, under threat, and B, would be is, is a significant election issue? I'd be interested in, uh, I'm, I, I, I think it's an interesting strategy, I'm just a little bit skeptical that 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 one runs for re-election on that basis. Um, I think that's that's a good observation. I well, I would say I don't think he has much of a choice <laughs> in, in <laughs> like in, in the sense that as I mentioned, it can't be MAGA 2016, as you said, it can't be about Trump the man. Although a lot of people will vote for Trump because they like Trump as a person, uh, or not they like him, but they're 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 attracted to him in one way or another, um, and it can't be. Um, look at everything I've done for the economy. Which, so he doesn't really have, I would argue, not much of an alternative to go on. Uh, I think in America, yes, people do care about it. I couldn't say whether it's enough to get him over the line, but it is something that is very deep within the American people. I think Bannon's sort of conception of, um, you know, the, the as you're saying, Scott, the fundamental essence of America is with its heartland and with its people is actually something that is true largely in, in America. Um, and if you look through American history, this, there are these kind of convulsions that they go through. Um, it is a, a, a self-governing republic in the sense, in a way that we're not with a Westminster-style democracy. So it is a bit different. It is a bit more grassroots um, in America. It's a bit more decentralized. There's a very strong sense that the average American person is a custodian of the revolution and, and their traditions. Mm. Again, I don't know... America in 2020 is different to America in 1980. I do not know whether that sense of Americanism is still strong. I don't know how many people um, have that view. So I, I, I'm open to what the outcome of the election is going to be. But I think it's, it's, it, is a, um, it is a message that I think will have wide resonance. And people are looking for leadership. It's not just about the statue themselves selves being torn down. It's not just about Mount Rushmore. It's about a celebration of American greatness and the American Revolution. Now, having fireworks above Mount Rushmore is about a celebration of everything that at least one side of politics believes America is all about. Yeah, and in one in one sense, you don't. If your interest is in um, seeing the republic continue, seeing um, uh, the ideas, institutions, and values of Western civilization uh, survive into the twenty first century. What you would actually like is to reach the point of the election where the Democrats are just as much on board yep. um, as, as anything Donald Trump is trying to say. It's almost like if, if, if Biden said, hey, you can't own the revolution. The, the revolution was not a Republican monopoly. This is, this is our common heritage and, and I stand for it just as much as you do. And, you know, I'm, I'm um, uh, with the story uh, of the founding through to Abraham Lincoln as much as anybody else. Then it doesn't matter who wins the election hmm. because it's still the regime's safe. The regime and, is safe, so and that, that is much more eloquent than Joe Biden would be able to manage. <laughs> yes, sadly. Um, <laughs> but but I mean, so so the the risk as I see it, the, the risk as I see it um, is 
that Trump falls into um, niche casting. Or he, he, what he's doing is fan service, right? He's been doing fan service for his base, certainly since the start of the pandemic, um, and just been trying to push away from everything that, as far as we can tell, according to the polling, is the focus of the electorate, which is, you know, the pandemic, which is only getting worse. And, and um, there are uh, certainly the, the numbers of cases are getting worse in the United States. Um, there are some interesting um, uh, reductions in fatalities, as we've discussed earlier. Um, and of course, the economy is just, you know, it's he's wandering around talking about very small upticks. Well, compared to the enormous downtick, the US economy, like the Australian economy, is in um, just just more crisis than it's been at least for 70 plus years. Um, and it just strikes me that just it, it just doesn't sound like the message for the time. We're, Scott and I were talking earlier, actually, um, and this is a little bit of a reversal of some of my frustration with Scott Morrison. Um, uh, if you recall, a couple of years ago, Scott Morrison made the argument that there are no jobs in freedom of speech, um, arguing that they shouldn't, that the coalition government shouldn't be focusing on nonsense things like 18 Cs. They should be just landing jobs and landing jobs and landing jobs. And and I found that incredibly frustrated. I care so much about these cultural issues and these fundamental um, liberties. And I thought, and, Scott and you Morrison believe that you can walk and chew gum. <laughs> can walk and chew gum. You can have jobs and um, talk. You can have jobs and freedom simultaneously. I, I think the two are kind of connected. Hmm. Um, uh, but but it seems like there has to be a half, there has to be both at the same time. And it just concerns me that the Trump campaign seems to just push away the, the, the material lived experience to be going just straight for the, the, the high level um, uh, cultural war. Um, issues. Yeah, oh, look, that's only possibly true. I, I probably have a slightly different take in the sense that I would see the pandemic and the coronavirus as a part of the existential threat to the American way of life. Um, Trump will hit China hard, and that's that's been a consistent theme he's had. So he's certainly got the upper hand on the China component of it, and it actually plays into a lot of his messages about national sovereignties. Um, talking about in the 2016 campaign, we need to bring supply chains home and uh, some of the challenges with globalization, we can agree or disagree on that. But he has had this message. He's got the upper hand on that message. And if anything, the actual pandemic drives home that message. Um, he didn't pick that up in his speech at Mount Rushmore, which I was surprised with. I thought that's a clear point of continuity, him saying, look, I've been right on this. You can't go for the globalist Joe Biden, who's been implicated with deals with China. Um, you need to stick to the strategy of national sovereignty and all of this. I thought that might have been a part of his strategy. Um, but I, I don't think they're, they're separable issues. The, you can't keep going with a lockdown and still have a, and this is true in Australia, I mean, you can't keep going like this and have anything like the country we know come out of it. Um, so there's that. I actually think, Chris, you're probably underestimating a bit how much Americans do care about um, their way of life and their culture as well. Um, and, and the same as Australia. I think Australians care very deeply about their, their history and their values, and they hate seeing um, these sort of radical protesters tear down statues and for their political leaders, not only to do nothing, but to actually allow it. I mean, this is the point. The political leaders took the side of the protesters over the mainstream. They took the side of Black Lives Matter who wants to abolish the nuclear family and defund the police. That's the, that's the scandal. And Australians hate that because they love their country. They're not always outwardly patriotic in a way that Americans are, but they don't hate their, hate their country. So I think there is a very strong groundswell of support for anybody who's going to stand up and defend our basic way of life. 
we'll no doubt be talking more about this in future episodes of um, yeah we we, might, we might touch on the american election again <laughs> <laughs> more than more than more than once perhaps chris um we did promise you a victorian sandwich a victorian sandwich has um a loaf on the bottom and the top about victoria and in between was our discourse in um diversion into american politics and trump's july 4th speech the other thing we wanted to talk to you about if you thought the pandemic was bad uh let's talk about the victorian economy because once again no apologies for reporting from victoria on victoria to our interstate listeners i know you're all out there anyway uh, our many friends all over australia look at victoria and it seems to be uh, either uh, you poor bastards or you dickheads, I think is what I've been getting on social media over the past uh, past few days. Um, but as long as we're at it, as long as you're looking at Victoria, let's let's tell you. Hey, a can few I things. can I make a silly point about that though? Please do something that really bugs me, Scott. Sure. That so much of our national media is run out of Sydney, and mm-hmm. a Sydney issue is a national issue, but a Victorian issue is a regional issue. Now. Um, of course, from Victoria, all the Queenslanders and Western Australians, particularly, and the South Australians and the Tasmanians are going, what the hell are you talking about? All we hear is about is Melbourne and Sydney. But I do want to point out that we can talk about state issues, Scott. We well, can. that's that's exactly right. And so, for instance, on Facebook, um, someone's had a nice little joke with a, with a map of Australia, including Tasmania this time, but without Victoria. So fair enough. However, that's a quarter of the Australian economy that you've just removed. So this is a not insignificant thing, and and so this is what we're getting to. And specifically, um, Dan Wilde and I, in the last edition of the IPA Review, which, of course, members will have received in their mailbox, uh, wrote this article called Tunnel Vision because we wanted to talk about Victoria and alert Australians to this uh, infrastructure binge, specifically a transport infrastructure binge uh, that's been going on in Victoria and uh, let people know of our deep, deep concerns uh, about that in terms of value for money, uh, the what it was going to mean for our finances going forward and uh, the potential for that to turn into a disaster, not just for Victoria, but for Australia as a whole. So over to my um, co-author of that article, uh, Daniel Wild. Thanks. Well, yeah, it's a... It's, the issue in Victoria is not just the coronavirus and the handling of the coronavirus, but also what was happening in Victoria prior to the coronavirus. And we know that we have already on the books was $100 billion in debt at the state level um, prior to the coronavirus, prior to the COVID spending. Um, that's just going to ratchet up and get a lot worse. Yeah, so that was the estimate for... Uh, so just to, to ground that, that was the Ford estimate uh, for the state debt as at 2023... $92.6 billion, up from $62.9 billion. So like a 50% increase um, over four years. Yeah. That, just that, that was that, just the forecast. Is it worth going through the headline figure, um, which we have in terms of the infrastructure spend? Uh, so there's a number of infrastructure projects going on right now in Victoria. There's, um, the total um, is around 150 major projects at a value of at least $74 billion. Now, I say at least because it's official figures, mm. but of course, many of these are beset by many cost overruns. If you go through the article that we've got, we give a number of examples. Um, you know, just to give one example, um, the Metro Tunnel, um, the official estimate of $11 billion um, due to be complete by um, 2025. You've got the usual kind of um, cost of wages and labour with um, the lolly, the lollipop, the people that hold the uh, the stop go signs, earning getting, over a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, a year. getting over a hundred thousand dollars a year. Now, I love, 
I'd, I'd love all Australians to be on high wages um, and in good stable jobs, but uh, it does get to a point where you start questioning how much of this is, is worthwhile. It would, be, and it would be nice to match it to productivity. That's, it would be nice to match saying. it to productivity mm-hmm. or even what the average Australian worker is getting. Um, so there does come a point at which, and the point is we're all going to pay for this. Right? I mean, all mm-hmm. of this is, they're not raising taxes, which I'm happy about, but they are raising debt, which means they are raising future taxes. And so it's going to be our children and grandchildren that pay for all this in the context now of a collapsing economy. Mm. in the context of a collapse. So it was already bad enough to begin with. Um, Victoria was highly concentrated on, um, on migration to underpin its economy um, and the construction sector. So it's a very um, unstable, unbalanced economy, I would argue, um, prior to the coronavirus. Um, what the economy is going to look like in two, two or three years' time would be much worse. And as you've said, Scott, this is not a Victoria issue. All you, the rest of Australia, you're going to have to bail us out. That's baked into the federation. That is baked in. The GST is um, a distribution from high-performing states, by definition, to low-performing states. Victoria, in the next couple of years, is going to be a very low-performing state. And Western Australia, Queensland, New South Wales, you are going to be bailing out Victoria. So this is a significant national issue that I think everybody should be concerned about. And I, and I say to everyone listening who's thinking, well, I don't really want to be in that situation where Victoria's committed, you know, $100 billion to an outer suburban rail loop that it doesn't need uh, using, uh, you know, 19th century heavy rail technology uh, and then requiring massive operating subsidies to continue just so you can catch a train uh, from, from Clayton to the airport when you could have jumped in an Uber and, you know, paid 60 bucks for it. We could, we, you know, we could have vouchers for every Victorian instead of all you wanted to do was catch a train around to the airport. Um, if you don't want to do that, get, get on the blower to ScoMo and Matthias Corman, he's only there for another six months, and say, mate, not only should you be exposing this, um, uh, stop giving them money. Why is the federal government kicking money into airport rail links um, where the approach of the Victorian government is you can never have too many tunnels? They're obsessed with tunnels. This is why we call the article Tunnel Vision. Every time you build a tunnel, one of these, one of these digging machines, there's a quarter of a million bucks um, down the tube, uh, figuratively and literally. And do you know what happens to a boring machine when they're finished building the tunnel? They take it off. Uh, into a into a little uh, uh, side alley and they bury it and they leave it there and so any any thought that this is a 21st century approach to a transport system begs the question this is this is about having uh, a make work uh, for the ALP's friends in the unions um, uh, both in construction and operations um, there's no the cost benefit analysis comes after they've already done this they've already committed 50 million dollars to uh, feasibility studies for this outer suburban rail loop. Uh, they've, it's all tied in with uh, the Belt and Road, which is in the article too. Um, so when you're in a hole, stop digging. So <laughs> Metro Rail, that's 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 already happening. So it'll it'll be a massive cost overrun. You're oh, sorry, Australia, you're going to have to help bail that out, just like you did Victoria in the 1990s. But outer suburban rail loop, northeast link. You know, a $15 billion project, which is now, you know, almost certainly going to cost more than 20. Um, just stop. Just stop right now because Victoria, because of all the other things we're talking about, can't afford it. Australia can't afford it. It's time to have a good hard look. Uh, Matthias, please, the last thing you should do before you go out the door in six months' time is release all the costings you have. If you haven't got the costings, you better go and do them now and actually tell Australians the truth about what's going on in Victoria. 
that that's Scott's weekly editorial. So thank you, Scott. Um, I just I, I'll, I'll make a couple of points here, um, and it's a great piece, um, uh, guys. Congratulations. Um, the 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 situation that Victoria is in right now is precisely the reason that we care about reducing debt in the good times. When the economy is doing well, you pay down the debt. You do not continue to run deficits. You do not continue to be slack with your economy, even though there are all these cool things that you could spend the money on. You could absolutely spend the money on health and welfare and infrastructure. But when there comes a once in a century pandemic, when there comes a global financial crisis, then you are stuffed. Then you are in huge problems and the whole thing spirals out of control. Um, the, the debt challenge is not over. Thank God at the federal level, we had a government that cared at all about paying down the debt and reducing the deficit. Um, uh, and they didn't go anywhere near as far as they could. But the question I wanna ask you, Dan, perhaps, is um, infrastructure spending is a proper role for a state government um, to the extent that, you know, we're, we're going to, as the libertarians say, um, uh, you know, you, you, someone's going to pay for the roads. Now, that could be the private sector, but we're not in the libertarian paradise that I wish we were. Um, so, so we have to make these infrastructure spending decisions. But it seems like every time we make them, they end up highly politicized. They end up incredibly expensive. Is there a way through that free marketeers can can argue for, you know, responsible infrastructure spending without just falling into absolute crisis that it seems like happens every time there's a surge? Mm. No, it's an important question. And there's a couple of parts to it, I think, Chris. One is, uh, my, my answer is probably no. <laughs> Because of the, to be honest with you, because, We're stuffed. We're stuffed. because of the political economy of, of, of infrastructure, which is, so one of the issues is they never build enough infrastructure until the people are there. Well, why is that? Because there's no votes, right? So it'd be much better to build, you know, if you, if you think well, we're going to have all this population growth, so we better build some roads and hospitals and, and get the infrastructure shorted before people move in, that, that would be much cheaper. There'd be less disruption, but no one's going to vote for it because by definition, no one's there to vote for it. So there is yeah, a... There is otherwise, a, otherwise you end up with the Chinese situation where you build empty cities that may or may not be filled. People may or may not go there. So I just think it's something that we have to... It's, it's really, to me, a muddle through situation. I just think it's, can we get this 10 or 20% better than what it... I don't think there's going to be a silver bullet to a lot of these problems. Um, in Victoria, I would, I would make the point in particular that we've, there's been very rapid population growth over the last decade and over the last two decades that has not been planned for um, whatsoever. I mean, at, you know, Australia-wide, the average um, annual net overseas migration, which is the permanent, was 75,000 from Federation until 2005. And then since then, it's been 215,000 a year on average. So from 75 to 215 as an average annual intake. There's also 2.3 temporary migrants, 2.3 million, which is 11% of our population uh, here every year, where it was just 1.7 million um, five years ago. So there has been a massive, massive ramping up of, of migration into Australia, um, which I think has caused a number of public policy issues, one of which is infrastructure. And then in Victoria, there's also a big um, interstate 
um, flow. So Victoria has something, over the last five years, Victoria has 73,000 net inward migration from other states. New South Wales, by contrast, has had about 77,000 outward migration. So the combination of very rapid international migration to Victoria and interstate migration in Victoria um, has exacerbated what already was a, 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 a badly designed and implemented uh, infrastructure system. I was going to say, well, they're all going to leave once the economy goes down. But to be honest, we're not going to let them leave because the borders. They are can't. Shut. You can't get out. <laughs> yeah, the, board, the borders are closed. <laughs> so, uh, but, I mean, there are there are policy there are policies that you could do. So I I, I take your point that it's always going to be a muddle through. We shouldn't be looking for perfect solutions to anything. But there are policies that I don't think we're adopting fully. So um, I mean, I made the silly dig about the libertarian private road stuff, but there's much greater role for the private sector in building a lot of this infrastructure that for lots of ideological reasons, the governments uh, governments are quite opposed to. There are ideological reasons that you would want this, um, uh, just dozens of tunnels around the place. So, I, so, uh, so we're in, our, I, I'm, my office is at RMIT in the city. And as far as I can tell, they are building a station right next to Melbourne station. Melbourne Central Station already. It's got to be 30 metres away. Um, the duplication, the ridiculousness of that, and it's obviously driven by some key political decisions made about the shape of different electorates and what they expect um, uh, the, the Greens versus Labor electorates to look like in 10 years when we finally are allowed yeah. to use this train. So that, but, but, my, so, but so my point is that there are policy choices we can make. Indeed. And uh, if, if re uh, listeners will forgive uh, a quick uh, planning meeting, uh, I think we should return to this, Chris, because uh, what's already happening is we're moving from any kind of actual justification to infrastructure to just pure Keynesianism. Uh, by, the time, well, yeah. by the time Dan Andrews steps up to announce another one of these stupid projects, the justification will not be that it's an essential piece of transport infrastructure. It will be that it will create jobs. Yeah, jobs. And I know. And it's this idea that we've all inculcated the idea that you, to do fiscal stimulus, you need shovel-ready projects. Now, I think by definition, if it is, quote, shovel-ready, it is going to be a bad piece of infrastructure and it's going to be a useless piece of stimulus. Almost certainly. So, um, speaking of libertarian paradises, we have come <laughs> to that part of the show where we talk uh, books and culture, what we've been reading, watching and listening to, or in this case, Chris, what we're going to be watching or listening to over this coming weekend. We are. So uh, I will be involved in and helping organise the uh, Friedman Conference, Friedman 8, the great libertarian society, Australian libertarian society, CONFAB, that we hold every year, usually in Sydney, and now we hold it on the internet. Um, it is a 24-hour uh, conference of palooza of freedom and the ideas of free markets, individual rights, and a free society. Um, uh, if you visit the website alsfc.com.au, that's Australian Libertarian Society, freedmanconference.com.au, you'll be able to see the enormous range of speakers. We've got David Friedman of the Freedman. So I'll actually give a bit of a background. Why is it called the Freedman Conference? Well, the libertarian movement has a lot of different views and a lot of different um, variations of radicalism from sort of libertarian conservatism or classical liberalism to anarcho-capitalism on the other side. Um, and the Friedman family, which is Milton Friedman, David Friedman and Patrick Friedman, each generation becomes more radical over time. <laughs> so to bring the whole movement together, it was decided 
that it would be called the Friedman Conference and read into that as you, you see just it. pick pick your favorite Friedman. Pick your favorite Friedman. So, um, uh, so so David Friedman is speaking. Um, we've got Mike Munger and Russ Roberts. In fact, I'm interviewing Mike Munger and Russ Roberts. We've got Senators James Patterson and Amanda Stoker. We've got the great Matt Ridley, um, the great Ian Hersey Alley. Anyway, everyone's great. Um, Dave Rubin, um, which is really exciting. Uh, Daniel Hannon, Brian Kaplan, just an extraordinary lineup of the world's best um, free market thinkers, conservative thinkers, classical liberal libertarian thinkers. Um, there really is something for everyone. It is on this Saturday, so the 11th of July. It goes for 24 hours. There are people who are going to be doing all 24 hours. There are um, uh, there are many, many... Who's, who's, who's handling the uh, graveyard shift, uh, Chris? Uh, so the theory is that Gideon Rosner is handling the graveyard. The IPA's own... Gideon Rosner is required to stay awake over the graveyard shift. Speak to our American friends. Um, Renee Gorman um, will be highly involved. Uh, James Bolt and Pete Gregory, highly involved. There's um, many, many other IPA speakers that I'm embarrassed. I can't remember off the top of my head. But um, it is going to be a fantastic crowd. I really hope that our listeners are looking forward have the opportunity to join us. Yes, no, we do recommend uh, get around that. We'll put that link in show notes as well as uh, links to uh, Tunnel Vision and also an extract of Tunnel Vision, which has just appeared on the uh, wonderful Spectator Australia's uh, flat white uh, online page. So uh, show notes this week will be uh, very good. And I think show notes, really. It's going to be really good show notes. Great. Um, Dan, your culture pick. Oh, thanks, Scott. So um, as you mentioned at the top of the show, my culture pick is a uh, the latest book by Joel Kotkin, who's an American um, – well, by trade, he's really a demographer. He does a lot of work on what you might call urbanisation, cities, the structure of cities. Uh, but he's had some significant contributions into the current debate along the lines, really, what we were discussing with um, Trump in an America and what's going on in that um, context. He's got a new book which has just come out, which we've given the old review a very good plug already, and I will give it another plug because I'm reviewing his book for the next review, um, which is The Coming um, Age of Neo-Feudalism. Um, as the name suggests, it's his basic premise is that you have um, an in, uh, sort of a, a dichotomy growing where you have a, a large proportion of the population who are essentially uh, propertyless serfs, so they don't own anything in the way that they used to. So um, home ownership, car ownership, um, the ability to access a decent paying job. So there's a large and growing proportion of the population that don't really have a stake. They're not rooted in anything fundamental. And then you have a, a group essentially of detached um, elites uh, who are essentially have captured the economy, have captured the commanding heights of the, the main governing institutions, uh, corporations and so forth, and um, are fundamentally detached from uh, what we would call the mainstream um, of their countries. It might sound very familiar to a lot of um, people, but he has been... He is, I would encourage people, if you don't want to read the book, if you go to his website, and perhaps we'll put up a link to his website, he's, he writes, he's a prolific writer. There's two or three key essays that he's written that basically get to the nub of his books. You don't need to read the whole book, but he's written, uh, and, and I think um, certainly one of my research emails, I emailed out um, a link to one of his articles. John Roskam has talked about some of his articles. He really is one of the, the really key thinkers on this particular issue, and he's been very much ahead of the curve. He's a very important thinker alongside people like Victor Davis Hanson, um, who are really um, the key go-to people for this moment. And it gets to an issue that we've been talking about a lot at the IPA, which is the future of 
sort of the middle class, middle class prosperity, the ability to have a job, start your own business, own a home, have a better you know future for your kids and your family, have a stake in your community. Um, these are all the basic presuppositions of a decent, normal middle class life. And they are becoming harder and harder for the average person to attain. It's more important that you have a credential, um, usually a university credential than you did in the past. Um, you know, if you're, if you're a high school dropout, it's very hard for you to have any decent quality of life, which uh, I think raises fundamental questions about um, the future of our country and the Australian way of life. Joel Cotkin very much analyzes it, obviously, in the context of America and California in particular as being sort of a tip of the spear. Uh, but for us, it's relevant because it is a sign of things to come if we keep going down the road we are. No, that's that's a terrific one to look at. So that'll be out in the um, uh, in the spring edition of the IPA review. The winter edition will be um, uh, will be going to press next week. So Excellent. I certainly look forward to that. Uh, reminds me, incidentally, of um, Charles Murray's coming apart. Yes, he looked yep. at the top five percent and the bottom five percent. Um, but point. I th- but yeah. I think uh, uh, Joel Kotkin's perhaps putting it in a much more social context and certainly an arresting um neo-feudalism is an arresting yep. uh metaphor to run with um my culture pick is uh is also from america uh but it's hamilton the musical um because i've got kids uh, i've got disney plus um and in fact uh the kids have, have been listening to hamilton you know pretty much since 2016 and and i won't say that they've been illegally downloading anything but it's it's fair to say that they've they've Broadly familiar with the play itself, but now you, it's you, defi- you definitely wouldn't say that. No, you? definitely no, wouldn't no. say that. Um, uh, but uh, it's now out on Disney Plus. It is actually very good. Uh, I recommend to anyone who watches it, uh, uh, who has access to it, to to have a look. Um, uh, Lin Manuel Miranda spent six years putting it together. Um, uh, he then, which gave him the leverage to become the lead as Alexander Hamilton, the forgotten founding father of America. He's not actually a great singer. Uh, he's not the best performer on the stage, uh, but hey, you know when you own the rights, you you get to choose who who the star is. Um, he did the initial Broadway run, which was when this was filmed in in 2016, and um, and it really is about the American founding, Dan. It's um, uh, you know Jefferson's a a character, King George uh, is a character as as a buffoon. Um, he's the light and, and really really funny. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. it is really really funny, and um, famously uh, the music is um, contemporary to this age, not their age. So, you know, it's rap and hip-hop and um, one day I'll work out what the difference is um, <laughs> and uh, and so on. That's actually mostly in the first half. Second half, I think you get more classical, uh, sorry, more uh, types of songs that you would associate with the American musicals, more more Broadway. Um, so, and very entertaining for all that. Um, as Alexander Hamilton's wife, um, uh, she, the actress... Um, whose name's now escaped me, is terrific. But here's the thing. When that came out, that was seen almost as a, as a challenging countercultural piece because he cast, um, uh, say, African-American actors as Thomas Jefferson. Uh, it was colourblind casting, if not deliberately skewed towards people of colour. Uh, when Mike Pence attended, mm, uh, right. uh, they famously paused the production to harangue him about what a terrible government he was part of so it was seen as, as as a push from the left, if you like. It was emphasised that Hamilton was a, an immigrant and look how well he did. You know, doesn't this prove, you know, that we shouldn't be bashing immigrants? You know, not an unreasonable point to say, look at the story of uh, successful immigration into America. But now, by the time this goes out on Disney+, Plus, cancel culture has stepped up. 
and mm. and, and it's basically said, how dare you uh, valorise one of the founding fathers? Yeah. Um, uh, he married the woman he married. Uh, they, her family uh, benefited from the slave trade, and he, in fact, himself may have, through her assets, um, dealt in slaves. Jefferson, of course, was a slave owner, and he's a major character, played by an African-American, but playing someone who owns slaves. So cancel culture has actually erupted over this, and Lin-Manuel Miranda, of course, has no alternative but to say, yes, you're absolutely right. He's, well, I mean, he's totally bent the knee to the whole thing. Yeah. But is it amazing how in the space of four years, Chris, in the yeah. space of four years this has gone from some kind of oppositional push to now it's being pulled down? I don't think it was oppositional. I think it was a, it's a really interesting historical artifact about the difference between the way both left and right um, think of the Obama years and the Trump years. So, so you're you're right on whether it's, it was seen as a um, an endorsement of the, it's not post-racial because it was never quite post-racial, but the the post-racial sense of the Obama administration um, and now both left and right are much more divided on those questions and so it looks like a more peculiar thing what really bugs me though about the cancel culture point is the idea that we've just discovered that say Jefferson had slaves <laughs> that this is hypocrisy that has suddenly been revealed in the last two or three years and it is absolutely not. It was known at the time that this was a hypocritical issue. And it's been known ever since, you know, it was known at the time when everybody was flocking to Hamilton during the Obama years. It was known in the 1990s. It's always been known. And we've always been trying to deal with that um, historical and intellectual challenge about how do you admire what founding fathers have done but how and and simultaneously integrate that they may not have been fantastic people as people. This is not a new thing. What is new is the assertion that it has to be binary, that you cannot admire and criticize simultaneously, that you have to take the criticism. The criticism always trumps the admiration. And I think that's what the the Hamilton is going through right now. Now I'm not a big fan of Alexander Hamilton because I think he was a statist. I think that um, <laughs> he is more than anyone, more than any of the founders to blame for the strength of the federal government. Um, he tried to get through a central bank. Um, he was a protectionist. I don't like Hamilton. Um, but the idea that um, his contribution is trumped by, um, by, by criticism that his wife's family may have had slaves. I, I just, it's its ahistorical and it's completely ignorant about the way we have been thinking about this stuff for centuries now. Or, or it's its actually, Chris, it's completely historical. As you say, it's, it's like this this generation suddenly discovers all these things that have been known for, for 250 years and says, oh my God, who knew? You know, No, it's right. It's like, it's like how the 60s generation thought they found sex. Well, it turns out that the 2020s generation have found slavery. And like, we know about this. We've been dealing with this for, for a very, very long time. And just because it's your turn to deal with this doesn't mean that's a discovery. Indeed. Um, so we'll provide a, a, a link to uh, Hamilton, although you will need Disney Plus to access it. And as I say, this, this is actually a plug. I do think you'll enjoy it. Um, this has been looking forward to production of the IPA. If you'd like to join the IPA, if you haven't already, please do go to ipa.org.au. 
and uh, and get around it and uh, and check the show just notes. Get around it. Just, all, just get around just, it. Just get around it for all the, all of our great products, publications, people. It's all excellent. And uh, get around Friedman as well this weekend. You still got a chance to uh, buy a ticket, which will let you access everything online. Uh, some thank yous are in order. First of all, to my co-host, Dr. Chris Berg from RMIT. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for joining us, uh, Daniel Wild, Director of Research at the IPA. Pleasure, thank you. Um, and uh, Steve in the control room, thanks so much. Uh, we'll be back with more Looking Forward next week. 